All right. It's great to be here in the Harlem region of the New York City Church of Christ. Um, I am honored to be here this morning, and I really want to thank uh, James for inviting me. He speaks the truth when he says he's been trying to get me here for some time. It is true. Uh, I really appreciate James and his wife, Zalika. I believe that God has been using them in a great way here in Harlem. And the thing that I appreciate about James is that he's so vulnerable even in times of trials and suffering. And uh, I've seen the Lord really use him through those trials in a powerful way. And it's really challenging to, to, to know that even though, you know, you get through one trial and you think, okay, that's enough, Lord, and then God gives you something in your back. And, uh, brother, I'm going to be praying for you, man. I pray that the Lord will heal you and that in spite of what's going on in your back, that you'll still be able to, use, to be used by God in a powerful way. Um, my name is Sean, and uh, just a little bit about myself, I appreciate what James shared, is that I was born in Canada, my mother is Jamaican, and my dad is Trinidadian, and I spent my childhood in paradise. I spent my childhood on the islands of Jamaica and in Trinidad. I am a Caribbean boy. My blood runs warm, and I do not like the cold. And when I, when I took the train this morning, I was like, oh, man, I am in New York. I became a disciple while I was studying at the University of Toronto, and I'm grateful for the campus ministries that the Lord has established in so many different churches. I met my wife here in New York. I came in for some more training while I was on the, on the mission field, and, and, and everyone was telling me about Robin Jackson. Have you, have you taken Robin Jackson out on a date? And I took Robin Jackson out on a date, and I thought, man, I need to take this sister out on another date. And then we eventually uh, went steady, and we got married 21 years ago, and I am grateful for the New York City Church of Christ, for providing me my wife and for the way the women trained her and molded her and, and helped her to become a great woman of God. Today the title of my sermon is A Faith That Moves Mountains. And you know in Matthew 17 verse 20, Jesus told his disciples, you know, they, they had a little problem. Um, they were not able to heal a boy who was uh, demon-possessed and and they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what happened? Why were we not able to heal that boy? And Jesus gave them the answer. He said, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth. If you have faith, as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. What I believe Jesus is speaking about here is that there is a personal responsibility. There is a personal dynamic. There is an individual dynamic with the idea of faith. You must have faith. I must have faith. You must say things to mountains. I must say things to, mountain, to mountains. And if I have faith, if you have faith, if we have faith, those mountains will move. Now, I hope that each one of us want to have mountain-moving faith. Do you want to have faith that moves mountain, church? Amen. Well, today what we're going to do is we are going to focus our study this morning on one of the Old Testament prophets. His name is Daniel. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to study out the kind of faith that Daniel had that moved mountains. So before we turn to the book of Daniel. Let's bow our heads and let's say a word of prayer at this time. Father in heaven, we are so grateful and thankful that we can gather today and worship you. You are worthy 
of our worship. Because you are a great, magnificent, sovereign, omnipotent God. You are an eternal God. You have no beginning and no end. Father, you created everything that we see. And you knit us together in our mother's womb. And you've given us life. Today, Father, help us to be alive spiritually. May your Holy Spirit minister to each heart, to each mind. Enlighten us, Father, with the word. Invigorate our faith. Father, help us to be men and women who have deep convictions, whose faith is ever-expanding. Father, I pray that you will use me to preach your word, to be faithful to the text, and to preach your word with boldness. Father, may your spirit work in our lives at this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. Now, while I was preparing myself to, to come, I got a call from Amari inquiring about if I had any PowerPoints. And, and I, I suppose in Harlem you're used to PowerPoints. Just before I got up here, James said, do, do you have a PowerPoint? And I said, bro, I don't. So I'm here to tell you, I do not have a PowerPoint. But I intend to preach with the Spirit's power. Okay? You with me here, church? All right, let's dive into it. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Joachim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other king, than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, 
Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered into the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is just chapter 1. And this fires me up. This is inspirational. Here we see a man, a young man, who left Jerusalem as someone who was conquered. He saw the destruction of his great city. And he goes to a foreign empire as a slave. And he excels because of his faith. first thing we have to see about Daniel is that he had the faith to remain pure. He had the faith to remain pure. It takes great faith to be pure, brothers and sisters. In verse 8 of Daniel chapter 1, it says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself. He resolved not to defile himself. What does it mean to be resolved? When you are resolved about something, you make a firm decision to do it. Daniel did not want to offend his God by eating food that God told the Jewish people not to eat. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the book of Leviticus, there are certain foods that God specifically outlined that distinguished that he distinguished from being holy or profane. And the people of Judah, if they wanted to be a holy people, they had to eat the types of foods that God said they could eat. Even though Daniel was no longer in Jerusalem, 
even though it appeared as if the kingdom of God had been completely vanquished, Daniel resolved not to offend his God by eating food that he knew God said, don't eat them. This was his personal conviction. There was no Bible talk leader or church leader overseeing Daniel. There was no Levitical priest or, some, or someone from the tribe of Aaron in that room. Daniel had his own personal convictions. I'm not eating that food. He could have made excuses. He could have said, well, we're in a different time. We're in a different culture. But he did not. Brothers and sisters, we must be a people who have deep convictions about purity. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus himself said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If we are not pure in our hearts, we will not see God. Don't kid yourself. In James chapter 1, verse 27, James said that religion that is pure and faultless is to look after widows and orphans. But he also goes on to say, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And I'm here to tell you, he's not talking about industrial smog. He's not talking about, about the pollution that comes out of the automobile. He's not talking about the, 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 the global crisis and the condition of the environment. He's talking about the pollution, the sin that people in the world commit that pollutes this world. Let's not deceive ourselves. The world is being polluted. And because we live in the world, we are being polluted by the world. This generation is a generation like all other generations. It is corrupt and it is depraved. We see racism, hatred, sexual immorality, violence, drug addiction, and greed. The world is a place that is being polluted. And because we live in this world, we are affected by the pollution. Brothers, are we keeping ourselves free from being polluted? I want to talk about two areas of, that I believe that we need to be diligent about. The first area is sexual purity. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's take a look at this passage here. In Ephesians chapter 5. We'll, we'll get back to Daniel in a, in a second. But it says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3. In fact, let's, let's start in verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. As men and women who are striving to be children of God, we have been called to a higher standard than the world. You with me here? Because it says here, as dearly 
love children. And and, and many of us consider ourselves to be sons and daughters of God. Correct? It says, among you, among us, as a people of God, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of impurity. Now, he's not even talking about committing the act of immorality or of impurity. He's talking about there not being a hint. Now, what does that mean, a hint? That means that no child of God, whether male or female, should give any suspicion that they are, are, are living a life of impurity or immorality. There should not even be a hint. Even if someone were to accuse us of living that kind of lifestyle, there should be zero evidence of that type of behavior in our lives. Why? Because the world is full of immorality and impurity. You, you, just, you just open the newspaper, turn on the computer, go to a movie, go to a TV show. There's all forms of immorality and impurity that is polluting our world. It's almost become a normalized behavior. It's almost as when, when teenagers grow on up, right? It's almost like if it's a rite of passage. It's like you haven't been involved in immorality yet? What's wrong with you? It's become normalized in our society. But is there a hint in your life? What's your online conduct looking like right now, brothers? If we were to show, you see how we have these PowerPoints? If we were to show a history of the websites you visited, would there be a hint? Is there a hint on your job? Look, I know you go to work at a particular place. You don't know who works there. But there may be an attractive woman who catches your eye. And you know us brothers, it doesn't take a lot, right? And, and that woman may see you. you. You're looking good. You're not like all the other guys. And, she, and, and she's got your attention. And it always starts off with just casual conversation, doesn't it? And then eventually it starts to, you start to feel something in your heart towards that, that co-worker. You actually, you actually can come to work looking forward to seeing that co-worker. Are you flirting with someone on your job? Are you lusting in your heart at another woman being, uh, and being preoccupied of thoughts, with thoughts of being sexually involved. Jesus said, if your eye sins against you, what? Pluck it out. That's, that's how radical Jesus wants us to be to keep our lives free from sin. The question is, have you resolved to live a life of sexual purity? Is that your conviction? You know, for me, when I became a, a Christian, I had to make a decision that I need to live a life of sexual purity. And that was not an easy decision to make. And there's been challenges. The other day I had to talk to a brother about some of the struggles that I've been having. And as brothers, we were all, as long as we're in the flesh, you know, I, I, I used to think, man, I thought this thing was going to go away. I'm a Christian. I've been forgiven of my sins. I'm reading my Bible. Why am I struggling with this temptation? And I remember a brother telling me, look, man, as long as you're in the flesh, you will always have those struggles. But I don't have to be a slave to my temptation. I don't have to give in to my temptation. I can confess my sins. I can, I can, I can make some decisions about my life. And that's been my Christian journey. I've made, I've made some decisions, but yeah, I've fallen down. But I've got to get back up and keep being resolved about my purity. 
Brothers, it's a, it's a journey. It's a fight. But we can't give up. And we can't let the world tempt us into compromising on those standards. The other area that I believe we need to be pure about and pure in is the area of greed. In Hebrews 13 verse 5, it says, keep yourself free from the love of money. Mm. Now look, we live in New York, right? This is the financial capital of the world. And the world has its ideology about money. And its ideology can be summed up in five simple words. Get rich or die trying. That's the ideology of the world. Do anything you need to do to get more money. Work harder. Work 25 hours in a 24-hour day. Skip your lunch. You don't have time for your wife or your kids. You've got to work. Why? Because when you have money, you have power. People will respect you. You can get anything you want. That's the ideology of the world. As Christians, we've got, we got to keep ourselves free from the love of money. Let's make it clear. There are certain things that money and only money can buy. Food. Heat. Amen. Got to pay national grid. Medicine. Health care. Transportation. Preach about money, man. Things always happen. Even the sound system is reacting. Picking up, picking up vibes. You know, money, money is, a, is an amazing tool, but it is a merciless master. Merciless master. And, and we got to keep ourselves free from the love of money. And you got to ask yourself, how is it going in your life personally? How content are we? If you read on in that passage, it says, it says we got to be content with what we have. Are you living a life of contentment? Do your children see you being content? Does your wife, does your husband see you being content with what you have? What is greed? Greed is simply a desire for more things. That your life is unhappy, you feel unfulfilled because you can't get that $300 pair of sneakers. You can't get that new iPhone. We want all these products, these electronic gadgets, because we feel that that is what is going to fulfill us. And I have to admit, there's something that just gets to you when you buy something new. You know, when you go into a store and you buy something new, you just feel like, hmm, you feel good. You're walking out, out of that shop with your bag and you're like, hmm. New thing. And then when you open that thing and it's just that new smell. <sniffs> it's just invigorating. I remember a few, a few months back, a sister bought a new car. And, and we were like, what? You got a new car? She said, yeah. You want to come smell it? And I said, yeah. So she opened up the back seat. And, 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 and I mean, that, that smell of new leather. Mm. Feel fired up. Then I go back in my Hyundai Sonata and I smell and I'm like, oh, I gotta get some air freshener in here. Look, here is something powerful about new things. Right? It's real. 
to keep ourselves free from the love of money. You know what helps keep myself free from the love of money is giving generously to God. You know, and you got to ask yourself, what's your giving like? And before the sound system crashes and burns here, <laughs> you know, sometimes we gotta we gotta check ourselves. You know, do, do you? Do, sometimes we can feel like giving to God is preventing us from from acquiring a life of luxury. We can feel that. Look, I felt that way when I see those checks coming on my account. I'm like, wow. Could do a lot of other things with this. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I've been a Christian 28 years. I'm struggling sometimes with those things. I'm just trying to keep it real. And I'm a minister of the gospel on top of that. Supposed to be preaching the word of God. <laughs> Look, it's real. I took the train here. I got one car. I can't afford another one. Actually, I probably could afford another one. It's the insurance that's going to kill me. <laughs> you kidding me? Car insurance? Holy cow. I'm like, uh-uh, I'll take the train. I even bought a bike this, for, the, for, for Father's Day. I bought a bike. I'm like, I got to have another form of transportation. Next time I'll cycle down to Harlem. But, you know, I want to ask you this. Do you know what portion of your income you give to God? Do you actually know? I mean, do you actually know it? You know, for those of you who said yes, amen. You know, I I remember we had a devotion a few years ago, and I asked brothers and sisters in Queens, you know, I mean, do you know what portion of your income you, you, you give to God? Very few people put their hand up. Now, people give, but they don't know what portion of their income. And so we went through a bunch of training and a bunch of teaching as to how to calculate what portion of their income they give to God. Because the Bible does say you need to set aside a portion in keeping with your income. So we've got to think about it in terms of our proportion. You with me here? And, and, and if you don't know what portion of your income you give to God, you should find out. You should know, and I'm not telling you what portion you are to give. I'm telling you, and I'm helping you here with knowing. It's important for every Christian to know what that portion is. It could be 6% of your income. It could be 9%. It could be 11% of your income. But you've got to know the portion that you give to God. God knows what portion you give him. It's good for you to know. It's just good to know this. We can't stay in the dark. On these financial issues. You know, the other day I was going over my giving. And I realized that I missed some weeks. You know, different things had come up. We were on vacation and once we were out of town. And, you know, I thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to, I'll just double up the next week. And then the next week I didn't have the money to double up. And then I was like, you know, and then you just kind of forget. Well, I was going over how I did over the summer and, and how we're doing. And I realized I missed some payments. I don't even want to call it payments. That's just wrong. But I missed some of my offering. A payment is like paying national grid, you know. That's, and again, you see how easily that just slipped out? My payment. It's not a payment. It's an offering to God. But what I got to do now is recalibrate because I want to make up my offerings to God. I want to do that. I want to keep my vow. But I know in keeping my vow to God, it's going to mean that I'm going to have less to spend on stuff That's new. (laughs) You with me here? It's going to be challenging these next few weeks going forward, but I want to end my year strong here. You with me? Brothers and sisters, that's how we keep ourselves from being from the love of money. Give to God generously. He'll take care of the rest. Amen? If we're going to have the faith that moves mountains, we've got to be men and women who are resolved not to be defiled from this world. If you're visiting today, how do you protect yourself from the world's pollution? How do you do it? What's your plan? You know, if you don't have a plan, and if you're not sure what to do, I want to encourage you, if you're visiting, to study the Bible. 
and expose your mind to the purifying power of God's word. Amen? All right. And that was just my first point. <laughs> All right, let me see if I can. I got, I got three points here. So let's, let's go to point number two. Let's see if I can work through this one more, more quicker, quickly. Point number two. A faith that moves mountains is a faith that convinces others. Let's go back to Daniel. A faith that convinces others. Now you've got to appreciate Daniel. He had a conviction, right, about not defiling himself. But he was not in full control of his situation. And it says that he asked <clears throat> the, uh, the, the guy who the king put in, in charge of him, Ashpenaz, that was his name, Ashpenaz. He talked to Ashpenaz, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in that way. Now, it's interesting. He goes to Ashpenaz, who is a complete and total pagan. He knows nothing about Jewish laws. And he, Daniel is talking to him saying, listen, according to the laws of my God, if I eat this food, I'm going to be defiled. So help me out here. I can't eat this food. Ashpenaz looks at Daniel and Ashpenaz says, look, man, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, but the king's going to kill me if I don't give you this food and wine. Okay? So dude, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to eat this food. Daniel says, okay, let me keep trying. And then if you follow the story correctly, he actually speaks to the guard. And he's negotiating something with the guard. He's saying, listen, buddy, you've got to really help me out here. I can't eat this food. And the guard is afraid too. And then Daniel says, okay, look, I understand your fears. You, you want to live. I get it. Let me not eat this food for 10 days. Just a period of 10 days. Just test this out. And after 10 days, look at what he says here. He says, he says, compare our parents, verse 13, with other young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance to what you see. He says, just test it out. Come back and compare. And then, okay? All right. I'm, I, somewhere in there, the guard said, Okay. And Daniel wins the battle. Daniel moves the mountain that's before him. Daniel could have said, well, hey, they were restricting me back home, but now I got wine and I got pork. I've been meaning to get some pork. I, want, I never had it. I'm going to taste it. I'm in Babylon now, and you know what they say? When in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. He could have said that. He could have said, well, I asked the guy, and he told me no. Pass the wine. No, man, Daniel kept negotiating. For his faith. You with me here? And he was able to convince others to do what he believed was right before the eyes of God. You know, one of the great distinguishing qualities of the first century church was their devotion to one another. In Acts 2.42, it says that they were devoted to the... To the um, apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and they were always meeting together. It was amazing. If our faith is going to get strong, we need to be around one another. We need to allow the... You see, I believe the Holy Spirit works when you're having your quiet time. Yeah, I believe that. But the Holy Spirit works in even more powerful ways in settings like these when we're together as a family, as a congregation. There's something just magnificent about what happened. I mean, the singing today was exceptional. The four-part harmonies were on. You're singing together. You're worshiping. I, I believe that the Holy Spirit bonds us together through these shared experiences. That's how we mature in our faith. 
You know, we have two meetings of the body each week. We have a Sunday, mid, a Sunday worship, which is like today, and then we have a midweek service. And if each of these meetings take about two hours, you know, in a year, a, a person, an individual, will spend about 208 hours every year being instructed in a, congreg- in a congregational format, being engaged with, with, with great preaching and teaching from God's word and being involved in sweet fellowship. You get to know different people in the congregation and say hi, and you get to meet other people. That's all part of our spiritual strengthening. We, if, you, if you add up the hours, it's only 208 hours in a, in a given year. On average, if someone works eight hours a day, five days a week, you, you're, you're working, you spend 2,000, over 2,000 hours at work. Now stay with me here, all right? Think about it. You spend 2,000 hours at work and 200 hours in a, in a worship setting of the, with the congregation. Those are two extremely different numbers. 2,000 at work and 200 at midweek, right? Now, if, if someone decides, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to come to midweek because I'm working. What you've automatically done is you've, you've, you've withdrawn yourself of 100 hours. You've taken yourself out of 100 hours of spiritual instruction and spiritual feeding. Imagine if you cut your diet down by 50%. Imagine if you stop eating. You say, you know what, I'm not going to eat for 50% of the year. What's going to happen to you physically? You know, so, some of you all going to have some health crisis, right? If you just say, I'm not going to eat 50% of my normal food consumption. But if we deprive ourselves spiritually, what's, what do you think is happening to your soul? To your spirit. You think you're getting stronger? No. You can't. Now, a lot of people who I, who I talk to say that it's work that prevents them from, mid, from coming to midweek. Right? But when I look at Daniel, who is in a very difficult predicament negotiating with Ashpenaz, negotiating with the guards, saying, listen, man, I got to, I, I can't eat this food. I, I, I have to keep myself pure so I could be a son of God. He's, he has such deep convictions that he's convincing other people to let him have his way. I believe if we take this same kind of faith, on our job. And we talk to our boss and say, boss, I love working here. I want to work. I want to be the best worker possible. But listen, my faith is important to me. I've got to come to this meeting of the body on a Wednesday. I'll work later on Thursday. I'll put in more hours on Friday. Work with me, please. Can you please? And the boss may look at you and say, no, forget you. I don't care about your church or your faith. Then what do you do? i got to keep working. No, then you go to a co-worker. And you say, dude, can we switch off? Can I use your, take your shift? Can we do something like that? I mean, I'm saying, brothers and sisters, with respect to our faith, sometimes we've got to negotiate things with other people. But it takes faith to convince other people that your spiritual well-being cannot be compromised. You with me here? And I believe, brothers and sisters, that the time has come to choose between what is right and what is easy. It's easy to not have these conversations. To just cave in and acquiesce. Well, I've got to pay my bills. I've got to pay the rent. My boss says I need to be at, at, uh, at, uh, need to be, be at work, so, okay. I just don't see Daniel having that attitude. You following me? So we've got to have the kind of faith 
that convinces other people. Also, we've got to be aware that our task as a church is to proclaim Christ to a fallen generation. You know, no, no other institution on earth has been given this responsibility. Only the church of Jesus Christ has been given the responsibility to go and make disciples of other nations. And sometimes we've got to convince other people to believe in Jesus. We've got to win the world. The world is, is fallen. And the only institution that has been given the responsibility to share Christ with the fallen generation is the church. We've got to ask ourselves, man, how involved are we trying to convince our coworkers, our neighbors, our family friends, people who we meet on the train? How, how involved are we in convincing them to, 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 to have faith in Jesus? This is difficult. It's challenging. It's not easy. But I believe if we're going to have the faith that moves mountains, we've got to have the faith that convinces others. And my last point is we need to have a faith that excels on the job. A faith that excels on the job. This is the, this is the really cool thing about this chapter is that Daniel excelled on his job. If you look at it, in verse 5, the instruction was that, that, that he was, it says he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. That means that Daniel had to come to Babylon and learn a new language. Okay? Not only that, but he had to be familiar with the literature of the Babylonians. That means he had to learn uh, about the history of the Babylonian people. In Daniel 1, verse 5, it says that they had to be trained for three years. That's a long period of training. And for a period of three years, Daniel and his companions had to learn new things. They had to learn how to conduct themselves in the, in the king's court and how to speak. And, and they had to learn a whole new system of operations, completely different from anything that they'd ever seen in Jerusalem. And I love what it says in verse 20. It says, after a three-year period, the king looked, and what did he see? It says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Ten times better! When he looked at, he looked at all his other employees, he looked at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he said, these guys are ten times better than all those other folks. See, brothers and sisters, it takes faith to learn and to excel on your job. This was Daniel's job, and he took it seriously. Daniel excelled on the job, and by excelling on the job, he distinguished himself. Brothers and sisters, are we distinguishing ourselves on the job? We spend eight hours working for someone, whoever it may be, whatever your job is. The question is, are you excelling in your job? I got a job. I think I got the best job in the world. I'm a minister of the gospel. I love preaching. I could preach here for an hour and a half. But you don't want that. I love to preach, but I'm always trying to figure out how do I, how do I get better preaching? Some of you may be saying, yeah, bro, you need to be keeping getting better, brother. I mean, things that I've heard, I mean, you know. But I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to excel. I want to know more of my Bible. I want to be able to practice the things that I see in the scriptures. This is my job. I've got to be good at it. What's your job? If you're in the health profession, I want to encourage you to excel on your job. You've got to know your stuff. Know the medicines that you're dispensing. Be courteous to your patients, even though they can be mean. Be kind. Be considerate. But know your stuff. Take an extra course. Do some research. But know your stuff on the job. 
If you're working at Walmart, take pride in your job. Don't rob your employer by spending time on Facebook when you should be working. I've seen it. I go to Walmart. I see these guys. I'm like, you're robbing your employer. Put the phone away. Do your job. If you've been given a job to pack shelves, be the best shelf packer. They should be saying, where's Sean? I want Sean to pack them shelves. Sean packs those shelves ten times better than any of the other employees here. Why can't that be said about us? The other day I was in a hotel and this guy is cleaning the bathroom. And he's there whistling, man. And he's like, you could tell us he took pride in what he was doing. And I'm in the bathroom and I'm saying, man, you just have such a good attitude about your job. He said, absolutely. I, said, I, I told him, I said, listen, man, I commend you. Keep doing what you're doing. People may not appreciate it, but you be the best at what you do. He wasn't an Apple CEO. He was cleaning a toilet in a hotel. But he took pride in, in his job. Every Christian, no matter what you do, excel at it. If you're a student, do you have any students here? Y'all are like, ooh, boy. <laughs> you're sucking, man. If you're a student, excel at being a student. Go to class. Don't be like, I don't think I'm going to go to that class because the teacher is stupid. Look, the teacher knows more than you. That's why you're the, he's the teacher and you're the student. Don't go to a class and sit at the back and fall asleep and look at Instagram. Come to the front where the teacher's spit is falling. And say, I want it, man. I want it. When they ask a question, don't be like, well, I don't know. Put your hand up. Ask questions. Turn your assignments in on time. Be excellent. When they look at you as a Christian, they should say, this guy is ten times better than any other student I've ever had. Why can't that be said about Christian students? Let's have the faith to move mountains. Let's have the faith, brothers and sisters, to remain pure and free from being defiled by this world. Let's have the faith to convince others that our spiritual life matters. And let's have the faith that excels on the job. And know this, if we do our part, God will do his. See, that's the dynamic we got to be faithful. It's God who moves the mountains. And I want to encourage you, read the rest of Daniel. You're going to see this man in the, in the king's court, rebuking kings, appealing to them to repent of their sin. God took Daniel to the highest official of the land to speak truth to him. Did Daniel know that was going to happen? No, but he was a man of faith. Let's be men and women of faith. God will move the mountains. Nothing will be impossible for us. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for having me.